Again, I hope that y'all are doing well. It's always a good day to gather on the Lord's Day as, as the church. This morning, we are going to begin one of the most important and well-known chapters in, in, in all the Bible, and that is Exodus chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn there to Exodus 20, and we will start reading there in just a few minutes. It's very well known. Exodus 20 is very well known, and arguably, probably most everybody in the United States and most Western cultures have heard of the substance of chapter 20. However, it's very, uh, it may be very little understood or even accepted. They've at least heard of it. And this chapter is very important, even for us within a Western context, Western culture, because chapter 20 actually sets the basis of our culture, where as a people we would have some sort of shared values and morals and ideas of justice. And that comes from, at least in summary, from Exodus chapter 20. Of course, what I care most about isn't necessarily about the culture, but what is our most important, what's most important for us in this, in this chapter, that is for the church, and that is we are to, how are we to understand this chapter? If you've looked at your Bibles already, then you see already at the subheading, you know what we are talking about, and that is the Ten Commandments. Can you think of anything in the Bible that is more universally well-known one way or another, right? I'm not saying accepted, but universally well-known in some ways of the Ten Commandments. The reality, historically, is that Western society has been built upon God's law. The Ten Commandments being a summation of, of the law, in a sense, uh, is representative of that. And so in our culture, we have seen symbolically the Ten Commandments etched in stone and would be rest in courtrooms and courthouses throughout the country, throughout our country. In fact, there is a, uh, a marvelous um, uh, cutting of it, even with Moses in the, uh, the chamber of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. And the reason why is because in the establishment of Western culture, we've understood that what God has said to be good is something as a culture we should promote as what is good. What God has forbidden or forbade, we generally put as crimes, and we would say that this is, according to the law, we would say would be not good in, in promoting of life and human flourishing as a, as a culture. And what we've seen over, at least in, especially in, in my lifetime, is the outright rejection of these very facts. To, to make laws obscure, um, to make all right wrongs, um, to, be, to be the very ones ourselves becoming the uh, uh, the, the ones who make our own rules and our own laws according to what we want. All law is arbitrary nowadays, and it's based upon some form of oppression, if you should hold to the law or not. It's important for us to realize that in a time that we live, in a time that we exist, that people do not like the law. They don't like laws. They don't like rules. It's very anti-authoritarianism that is rampant within our culture. Authority and the law is considered restrictive. Right and wrong should be whatever you think and whatever you want to do at any given time. We are not, um, and we're not even talking about uh, difficult, uh, ethical, somewhat gray areas of the law, but the most basic of laws, such as murder, and lying, and stealing. In a, in a book by James Patterson and Peter Kim, they observe correctly that with no moral absolutes, everyone is making commandments according to their own personal desires. So they would say, 
These rules would say, uh, uh, I don't see the point of observing a Sabbath. I will steal from those who really won't miss it. I will lie when it suits me, so as long as it doesn't cause any real damage. And I think you can almost scratch that last line out these days. I will cheat on my spouse because, after all, given the chance, he or she will do the same. I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one full day in every five. And, of course, as thinking Christians, we understand how this untethering ourselves from, uh, for our culture untethering itself from, from objective truth and objective reality and objective uh, uh, history has, has, has had its tragic effects. The, the breakdown of societal structures, the, the shared moral beliefs and cultural norms, and yet moral relativism keeps marching on. But what about us? What about the church? Because after all, that's what we are here to ask this questions for us. And this morning, we are going to read the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. I'm really going to focus on mainly this morning on verses 1 and 2. Uh, but I want to read them all so that you understand the context. But also, the, que- the main question that we are going to ask is, what is the point of the law, mainly for us as Christians, the law from the scriptures. What is it good for? Let's look at Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You should not take yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you, have la- you shall labor and you shall and do all your work. Excuse me. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is within them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor, the fa- honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his inspired and holy inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. One of the first things that I want to say, especially right after reading the Ten Commandments, is that nowhere else in the Bible, or nowhere in the Bible, not even including here, is it actually called the Ten Commandments. Editors, translators, commentators have given them that name. You may see that, that word used, or those, that phrase used in Exodus 34, 28, but the actual literal Hebrew translation of those words would not be Ten Commandments, but the Ten Words. It's okay to call them commandments, but words actually make more sense in that, in, in what the Lord was doing 
when he came down upon the mountain that day to give them his word. Because these ten words connects us back to what God has not only is doing there, but it connects back to what God was doing in creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And if you know the rest of that chapter, how did God create the heavens in the earth and creation in the creation account over and over we see throughout chapter 1 this hebrew phrase that that says and god or or and he or the lord said for example and he said let there be light so how did god create he created by his word in the creation account, God created by his word. And therefore, creation then is solely dependent upon God's word as he created all things by and through his word. Now, what is God doing here at Mount Sinai? Well, after the fall, right, at Mount Sinai, God is recreating, in a sense, a people for himself. He is creating a people for himself. As he created all things by his word, now he is creating a new people, a new nation. And in that chapter 1 of Genesis chapter 1, that phrase, and God said, is said ten times. The word, God created by his word ten times. And here we have God's word, these ten statements that create his people. The understanding of words, instead of using commandments, makes this list more like words of, of, of giving life rather than just a list of rules. God is creating something in his word by which his people are to, are to live by. And so in a sense, we can ask the question, can the Ten Commandments or these ten words, do they give do they give life? Isn't that what Jesus told the rich young ruler in, in a way? When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, are you keeping the commandments? Is keeping the law how we gain life? How are we as Christians who we understand, we live in the are under the, the new covenant, how are we to understand and apply this old covenant? Does it, the covenant, does it apply at all? Are we, is there, are we bound to it? Is it binding to us at, at all? Should we, should we list out the ten words on a, on a banner and put it on the wall as a reminder for us? Should we put them in our church covenant as the rules in which we are to live by or you're not allowed to be a part of our congregation or in our church or am i just wasting your time by bringing up exodus 20 and maybe we should just be talking about john chapter 6 or john chapter 7 or john chapter 15 am i just wasting your time should we just ignore the old testament altogether and what's often is presented to christians is that this is the two extremes that you are to pick from. And so the law can be confusing. We are saved by grace. We sang it this morning. We are not saved by our works. We cannot and we could not keep the law. And so what do we do with the law? What do we do with these Ten Commandments, these Ten Words? It's a very important question. And that brings me to my first point this morning. It's a point that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, especially starting in chapter 15, but we've seen it throughout Exodus. And that these ten words are built upon the grace of God. The Lord God has saved his people by his grace. And the covenant that they are about to receive is a covenant that is built upon grace and not works. The whole Exodus story 
is predicated upon the order of salvation, right? That God has saved his people and they had no ability to save themselves. Moses was not called to the burning bush to go back to Israel and deliver them a message that sounds more like an ultimatum. Here is my law, be obedient in slavery, and then I will rescue you. That would not have made a good story, because there would have been no way that they could have done that. Israel was weak and frail and doubting and sinful and grumblers and complainers and enslaved to an unrelenting unbenevolent tyrant just like us weak frail doubting sinful grumblers complainers enslaved to an unrelenting unbenevolent tyrant of sin and what it took was a sovereign loving and grace-giving God to rescue them to draw them up out of the pit of sin and redeem them and say, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is all according to God's promises. And as the Lord said back in Exodus 19, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I've done to the Egyptians, how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Again, is this not our own experience one way or another in the gospel that we were all in sin and dead in our trespasses and sin, spiritually dead and unable to make ourselves alive? We were the corpse underneath the ocean floor. No way to swim up to the rescue uh, life raft of the gospel. It took a savior to dive down and rescue us and breathe new life into us, to bore us up onto eagles' wings. He lifted us out of darkness, literally and spiritually falling to our death until the grace of God swooped down and rescued us. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name may be given to you. That is the point of grace. Right here in the Old Testament, we see the grace of God as the great banner that comes before the law. And the order is is massively important. And stands right here at the beginning. And Christians, we can struggle with the law because we haven't been taught. And so it becomes, well, this is what God used to be. And now in Jesus, he changed his mind. And now everything's better. Now we're saved by grace. And yes, we are saved by grace. But grace is right here in the Old Testament. And here in chapter 20, the Lord himself again reminds them of his grace. He reminds them of this grace and how he saves them. Look at verse 1. He says, and God spoke all these words saying. And you can just stop right there. Two things. Who is God speaking to right here? And chapter 19 ends with Moses going down on going down from the mountain to warn the people of the, of the severity of God, of what's happening, of the awesome God who's come upon on the mountain and God's presence was being manifested. So who was the Lord speaking to? He's not speaking to Moses, but he's speaking to all of the people. We talked about this last week and this whole theophany of God coming and his presence wasn't just to be a terror to them, but to show them that their God is with them and that their God speaks to them. That Yahweh is there, and he is not silent. Brothers and sisters, how do we, how do you know of the grace of God? And the answer is simple, is because he has spoken. He has spoken. We're not waiting for a mountain experience with an audible voice of God to react or to respond, because he has already spoken fully and truly in his word. And revealed in his word is the grace of God 
where we even see it right here in the New Testament. And his word is true because it is his voice to us. We see the grace of God not only in the fact that he has spoken, but we see the grace of God in his sovereign will to save his people. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Now again, stop right there. And this is something that is so significant, quite significant, because not only here is the tetragrammaton, right? I am who I am, Yahweh. But it's I am who I am, who is your God. I am your God, the grace of God that is coming to them and speaking to them. The grace of God now is being declared to them in such a way that they would understand that they are his and he is theirs. And taking us out of slavery, he brings us into relationship with him. We call this adoption. And this is the context of which God is giving his law to his own people, to his own household. And brothers and sisters, that makes all the difference in the world. The indicative, I am the Lord your God who saved you, is driving the imperatives, you shall not. You cannot make the massive mistake of separating grace and love from obedience to his commands and to his word. And what did the Lord do for them? Verse 2, it brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Again, he's telling them of his sovereign will. And what was God's sovereign will? To be gracious in saving them. In redeeming them, I brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of oppression. I delivered you from death, and I brought you to myself, and I am making you my people. I have redeemed you. And this is what is called sovereign grace. This is what helps us keep the obedience to God's word. The grace of God, brothers and sisters, helps keep the law the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments in their place. That He has spoken to us His Word, that He has saved us, and He has made us His people. He has made us into His household. And that brings us to my second point this morning. And not only from the grace of God, how do we understand the law now? We, we put it in the context and the lens of the, of the, of the, of the grace of God. But we understand from the law how what we learn from the law and what we gain from the law is the will of God. But before we get there, we have to acknowledge some really important things about this law, about the law of Moses, right, in in totality. So not just the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, but, but all the law that's listed out. We'll see that go all the way through chapter 24 and so on, and you'll see it in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and things like that. The law of God. And let me give you a few really important things that will help apply and helping us understand. First, and this is not the most important, but it's very helpful for us to remember, is that this law was given to a people at a different time and in a different culture. And this is why we see why not every law makes sense in our culture. For example, in verse 17 where it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and down the list, it says, you not shall covet his ox or his donkey. I don't know about you, but my neighbor does not have a donkey or an ox that I can covet. And there are particular things about the law, more agrarian things, that we may not, under, we may not understand. So this is written in a different time, in a different culture. A second rule to apply is that the law of Moses was given to a people, to the people of God, to Israel, at a different point in the history of redemption or salvation history. This covenant was made with Israel so that the history of redemption, uh, um, this is the old covenant. But we, as we've already said, we are in the new covenant. This is the old, this is the new. 
and the new was inaugurated when? The Lord's Supper. When Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant that is of my blood. And as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks and needing a mediator, that Jesus is a better mediator, we've also read the verses from Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 that, that, the, uh, that this is a better covenant. The new is a, is a better covenant, a covenant not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we will see, the Mosaic covenant was written on tablets of stone. But where is the new covenant written? Yes, it's written in the Word of God, but Jeremiah 31 says where? That the new covenant is written on our hearts. But we see where they're linked. We see where the old covenant is still even linked with the, with the new covenant. And I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago about some of the timing of when all this was going down from Exodus 19. Israel came into Sinai, came up to Mount Sinai 50 days after Passover. And that's significant because at that point, that's when God gave the word to them, right? That's what we just read. That's what's happening. In the new covenant, 50 days after the cross, after the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ was sacrificed on the cross. We understand and know that that's when Pentecost was, and that's when the Holy Spirit came. And what did the Holy Spirit come and do? The Holy Spirit came and dwelt within his people and had written the law of God upon their hearts and these events are linked because in both of these events they both involve fire both involve the writing of god's law upon the hearts of the people but the difference is however which makes the new covenant far superior is that at pentecost there was the there wasn't a fire that was there that 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 went uh Uh, out of control and out of rage to confront us with the power of God, but the fire there was indwelt, and it was there to draw others in as they spoke and proclaimed the gospel with tongues of fire. This is the new covenant. The one patterns after the other. The one covenant was for a different time and for a different time in salvation history. And third rule that as Christians we need to understand is that our law is not the law of Moses, but what the New Testament, the New Covenant tells us is the law of Christ. And this is important. And I want you to pay attention to, to this. In Galatians, Paul addresses the church with a pretty important letter to the church in Galatia. Because there were church members that were being deceived and convinced by false teachers to add some Mosaic law back into their Christianity, eating certain foods, observe certain holidays. But especially to be a Christian, you must have circumcision. And he goes through Galatians and he, and he corrects them. In a sense, is what he says. He says, the way that you have been saved, the message that you heard from the gospel that I came proclaiming to you, and the way that you were saved and transformed was not through the old covenant, but through Christ. And so he gets pretty harsh with the Galatians there. Who's bewitched you? And then he sums it up in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What is the yoke of slavery? The yoke of slavery is the binding of these particular laws that were upon them. Verse 2, it says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will have no advantage to you. Meaning, if you've been saved by any part of the law, if you believe you've been saved by any part of the law, if you added anything, even the law of Moses, anything to Christ, then he says you're not in Christ. And you're certainly not making yourself to be a more superior Christian. And so then in chapter 6, as he's talking about watching over ourselves and then watching over others as we fight the nature of sin, In temptation, he says that we are to bear one another's burdens. And in doing so, hear me on this, 
Galatians 6, 2, bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill the love of Christ. So what's the, the freedom that Christ has set us free? No longer accepting the law of Moses, bearing one another's burdens, loving one another, and bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill now this new law, the law of Christ. The law of Christ is not like the law of Moses. If it was like the law of Moses, then, then we would have ten words right afterwards. So what is the law of Christ? And how do we fulfill it? By bearing one another's burdens. But what does that mean? Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law. Released having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way written of the written code. How do we fulfill the love of Christ and bear one another's burdens? We serve in the new way in the Spirit. Not in the old ways that is a written code Right? And that goes back to, our, back to that third rule right, of understanding the law. The Holy Spirit who has indwelt in us. He has given us new hearts. And he has written upon our hearts not the ten words, not the ten commandments, but the law of Christ upon us. And then he illuminates God's words to us so that those who are in Christ will know how to fulfill this new way, the law of Christ. The Spirit is the one who then produces fruit in us, produces the fruit of love and joy and patience and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Boy, that sounds familiar. Galatians chapter 5. But what does Paul add there at the end of verse 23 of Galatians chapter 5? He says, in these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Brothers and sisters, hear me on this. The Spirit of God then in the new covenant in which we exist, in which we reside, has transformed you. The Spirit of God has transformed you and renewed you in such a way and continues to do so that the virtues and fruits of the Spirit are not merely ways that we can quantify or codify in external laws that we can conform ourselves to so that we can look good in front of one another. But they are virtues and fruits that the Spirit produces in us because they are growing in us. You cannot, you, or listen, you can codify, do not murder. You can quantify, do not murder. It's called don't murder, don't kill someone. But you can't codify patience or kindness or love or goodness. You can experience the blessing of patience and kindness and, and love, and I hope that you have, being a recipient of those things, as well as the blessing of giving those things, but it cannot be codified in the same way. And so if you're patient, if you're kind, and if you're, if you're being loving, and you're being good, then murder in one's heart is then put to death because we love one another by the Spirit. And that's fulfilling, that's bearing one with one another and fulfilling the law of Christ. I, I love this example that I picked up uh, in a book by Tim Chester. He said it like this. He said, parents, parents impose a lot of rules on their children. And he's not saying this in a negative way, right? This is a good thing. Children, parents impose a lot of rules on their children, such as um, uh, don't, 
Don't let go of my hand when we're walking through a parking lot. Uh, ask to be excused from the table when you are done. Clean up after yourself when you're, when you're done eating or when you're done doing whatnot. But as adults, as, as you've grown up, right, now you're an adult, you don't necessarily obey those rules as they've been given to you by your parents. You do not have to hold someone's hand to walk across uh, a parking lot anymore. You do not need to ask permission to be excused from the table or you shouldn't have to be told to clean up after yourself. There's nothing wrong with those rules. As we said, those are good rules, and they're especially good for children. And they weren't given to you, or they weren't given to children because they're irrelevant. No, parents, uh, parents are not trying to make their children miserable and, and just uh, have to be obedient to a bunch of useless rules. The, the immediacy of those rules absolutely is not to make a bunch of messes and to clean up after yourself and things like that, as well as the, the safety of not getting squished in a parking lot. But these rules overall are intended to teach the child that as they grow into an adult, those rules have internalized as greater principles. Meaning, now that you and you walk across a parking lot, you know to look both ways and to be careful to not get squished by a car. And hopefully you, you know to have some manners at a, at a table when you eat together with people. And you show respect by cleaning up after yourself. And you show respect to everyone else by doing so. In, in a similar way, the, the law of Moses in, in, in one way, is, is no longer necessary because the Holy Spirit is internalizing for us the principles of the will of God that we would live holy and righteous as our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we produce the fruits of His Spirit that are lived out and enjoyed and delighted in by all of those around us. So less is the focus on the rule, but the focus is on the principle. And as we go through these, these commandments over the coming weeks, I'm going to show you more and more what, what I mean, but, but I'll give you one scripture that I think makes this point pretty well clear. In Hebrews 8.13, it says, in speaking of a new covenant, right? So the new covenant he's been speaking of, the covenant of Christ, the covenant of his blood, <clears throat> he makes the first one, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now we can make distinctions in the law, that there are moral laws and there are uh, civil laws and there are ceremonial laws. And we can make the argument that it's the moral laws that we still are to hold on to and the ceremonial laws and the civic laws in many ways have been fulfilled by Christ. I do not I do not deny that. I think those, that, is, that is true. But however, the Bible doesn't make such distinct distinctions in those things like we have. It just says that it is obsolete and that the new has come. The law of Christ. And so now what does that mean? That doesn't necessarily, just because it says that it's obsolete, doesn't mean now we just tear out the, our, our Old Testament from our Bibles. We don't skip over them. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, which is ultimately my main point that I'm trying to make, is that the law of God is still given to us and useful for us as the church, even in this time of redemptive history and salvation history, even, in the, even as in the new covenant, we, we look at the old covenant through the lenses, these lenses of the, of the new covenant to teach us those principles. Teach us the will of God, solid principles of godly living. We know that it's Christ who is our salvation. It's Christ who, who we identify ourselves in. It's not the law. You don't identify yourself in the law of Moses. If you do, we need to have a Bible study on Galatians together. It's Christ. And the law, though, is still showing us God's will. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He has not changed. He has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, regardless of what some popular Christianity and our authors and all those may say. He is the same. 
Man changes in their ethics according to their desires of their heart, but not the Lord. He has approved one set of behaviors in the Old Testament and has not changed his mind in the New. Has God changed his mind on murder? Has God changed his mind on stealing or adultery or fornication or any kind of sin? And so even though the law is given to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose, the law is still showing us the eternal will of God. And that's why we see how many of these moral laws still apply today and how they're connected right into the, the, the New Testament and applied. And we're going we're gonna to talk about those, but a big example is a, the summary of all the law, the two commands of love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that. Jesus says that, right? And he's even quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting from Leviticus 19. Has love for the Lord or love for your neighbor changed in the new? Not at all. In fact, we have already said that it's far deeper. That our love for one another is not just externally, but it's internalized. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has what? Fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, any other commandment, all of these, the will of God, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. And love is what? A fruit of the Spirit. And what the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments does for us, or the Ten Words, is they are showing us the will of God and how to love. How to love Him and how to love our neighbor in all of the myriads of different situations and places. The default is always love, patience, kindness goodness, the fruits of the Spirit. And so first and foremost, brothers and sisters, how we are to understand the law, yes, through the lens of grace, but it's also pointing us to the will of God. And lastly, the law is pointing us to our need for a Savior, and the law itself also points us to the Savior. Romans chapter 3, we're going to re read it at the, end of our, at the end of our gathering this morning, but it tells us that no one will be declared righteous by their works of the law. Because no one of us can be saved by the law. The law does not save. It, 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 has, it has no ability for you, for you to be saved by the law. It's not what it was designed for. It cannot. Remember, God's grace came before. It's not designed to save you. But as Paul says here in Romans 3, that the law not only shows us the will of God, but in doing so, the will of God is being shown to us that it exposes our sin. That we cannot live up to the law. We cannot live up to the will of God. We need to be made righteous first. We need forgiveness. Verse 21 of Romans 3, the the, the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, right? So here it is. The righteousness of God is Jesus, right? Here's the righteousness of God that has been made apart, uh, made to, uh, manifest to us apart from the law. That is Jesus Christ. And then he also tells us that what? At the end there. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they are bearing witness to Jesus himself. So in a sense, it's like the law is pointing right to Jesus. It's like, uh, our, I believe our, our brother prayed it this morning. It's like when John said, I must decrease and he must increase, the law is pointing right to Jesus. That it's him, that Savior that is to come, that will fulfill this law is the Savior that you need. And that is what Exodus 20 verses 1 through 2 overall is saying. I am your Savior. I am your Redeemer. 
no one else, and nothing else. And so the law then exposes our great need. Our great need. As we see the will of God, we understand that we are unable to fulfill that law. Even in just reading the Ten Commandments this morning, the Ten Words this morning. I think that there's some of you that could feel the weight of those laws, of those commandments, of those words, that none of us have ever perfectly kept the law in the way that the Lord God would have us to. We, we've, we've all, in a vast amount of ways, we have broken God's word. We have not followed the will of God. You have not followed the will of God. This is one of the main reasons why our culture today rejects God's law and rejects God's law even in public spaces because it's a constant reminder that they are sinful and that they fall way short of the glory of God and need a Savior. Our disobedience to the will of God reveals our rebellious attitude toward Him. And the law is also useful as well, not only showing us our sinfulness, but showing us that only Christ is our salvation. And just as Romans 3 tells us that, that all the prophets in the law point, uh, point us to another righteousness, that is Christ, and that, and that only in Christ then through, through faith in the Son of God will we be made righteous. And through the life of Jesus, he has proved that he is the only one who is righteous because he alone is the only one who lived a perfect and sinless life by keeping the entirety of the law of God, thus fulfilling it. He is then the embodiment of the very commands, love, love your Lord God, and love your neighbor. He embodies that perfectly. And you think about it like this, in, in the Old Testament, there's several wonderful saints like David. And, and David sang all the psalms, right? These magnificent psalms. And he, he sang about the steadfast love of God. He sang of, of loving the law of God. He sang of what, how blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the, in the path of scoffers. And he sang of these things. But David didn't keep the law perfectly. David didn't love God perfectly. David only idealized God in these particular ways. They could never truly achieve it as a sinful man. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. Same goes for you. You, you, you say you love Jesus, and you may love Jesus. And you love God. And you love His people. But that is more in an idealized way, because it's not perfectly lived out. But for Jesus, the ideal of loving God and loving his neighbor gave way from more than an ideal, but to reality. And we see that consistently throughout the Gospels, of how Jesus loved his Father and honored his Father, and he lived for the will of God. He lived out the will of God by loving the Father and loving others, even the least of these. And I also want to say this about how Jesus fulfills the law, is that as he fulfills the law, he brings the promises of the law to bear. The needs that the law exposes the need that we need to be saved. We need a Savior. Our need for salvation and redemption is exposed by the law. But as it points to Jesus Christ, it shows to us that that promise of a Savior and a better mediator and a better sacrifice, the Passover lamb, has come. 
And he has come in the flesh as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him alone. And then at the cross, all the curses and all the consequences of breaking the law of God that we deserve, that you deserve, did not fall on you, but fell upon him at the cross. He fulfills the law and brings all the promises of the law to bear. And so the law, what is it good for? It points us to the reality of our salvation by grace alone. It points us to the will of God and shows us how much that we need a Savior and yet points to the Lord, uh, the Lord God who has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And then through Him, we do not fulfill the law of Moses. He has fulfilled that law, but we strive by the work of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the love, the law of Christ. And that is how we are going to treat the law. Is that how you treat the law? Do you wrestle with the fact that you cannot ever be good enough? Or wrestle with the, the truth that you cannot keep the law even in its slightest ways and you think that then you'll, you'll never be good enough for God? And the reality of that question basically is yes. The answer to the question is yes. You cannot do it. In and of yourself, you will never be good enough for God. But as all that we have just said, what did Jesus do? He has fulfilled all of that for you. And so the, the goodness that you think that you need to achieve before God to get that acceptance, what we are telling you in all of this and what the law is screaming out to you is that Christ has fulfilled it. It's his righteousness that you need. And the only way to gain that righteousness is by grace alone through faith alone. And that's it. Or maybe, or maybe you've got it all figured out. And you're like the rich young ruler who says, I've honored my parents. I haven't committed murder. I don't tell lies. And the law stands here in a sense and condemns you. It is to correct you that you are in sin. And you have not perfectly kept the law. That it's not about the external ways in which we may murder or not murder, but it's the murder that takes within our hearts. The murder of hatred and dislike and disdain for one another. And even if you answer the questions that Jesus asked, have you ever murdered, you say no. Or, or if you've never lied, then you say no, then I already know you're a liar. So you already need the grace of God. We need not only to hear the law, but we need to hear the gospel and understand that in the gospel we have been set free by the perfect work of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of that law, so that we would be free men and free women to fulfill the law of Christ. And all God's people say,